welcome to Roses All Trash, the podcast accompanying weed community. And this week, our theme is like social global media and our disappearance. Our first reading is Noberto Nuno Gomez de Andrade, The Right to Be Forgotten, which is a piece about discussing the rights individuals have to have information, be it true or false, be deleted from the internet or from other public records, and how that could be an extension of one's right to privacy or not, and how that intersects with the right to have public access to information. Second piece is Georg Frank, Social Media and the Ecology of Emotion, which is a piece that describes the way social media has really warped our relationship to things like validation and celebrity culture and the way that manifests itself in the new sort of currency of power that has been created by social media. Next up is by Kath Albury. Sexual Expression in Social Media, and the title of this essay pretty much says it all. It describes the history and analyzes the social role of everything from like cybersex, webcams, dating apps, gay dating apps, Tumblr porn, um, taboo subculture message boards. So, you know, people who are interested in a certain subculture and how they interact online to discuss it. They talk about you know, conversations on amateur versus like idealized porn body positivity. And the essay goes into what these topics and these interactions all reflect about um, more abstract universal concepts like self-portrayal and social psychology, gender relations, and queer safe spaces. It's a great essay for anyone who is even like part of their sexual life online. And if you think you're not one of those people, I would say think twice. If you've ever voluntarily consumed anything sexual off the internet, even if it was just on Instagram, like a thirst trap for a few extra seconds, it's, it shows that, you know, just as every part of our life, part of it is now on social media, so is our sexual life. And our last reading is by Anna Dumer. It's called The Performance of a Ludic Self on Social Networking Sites. And it's an essay on how social media users naturally, intrinsically treat the digital world as a place where they can go to be playful. Um, And so she discusses this concept of ludic self-construction, which is the idea that our personality is built partly through our external experiences, not just something, you know, innate within us. And one of those experiences, like lifelong experiences, is our psychological human desire to play game. So she describes experiments in two African villages, Macha in Zambia and Dwesa in South Africa. Um, And in both villages, there was like a wireless network. Um, And social networking applications were the top sites accessed on these wireless networks. Uh, The document is pretty fun to read because it has excerpts of like Facebook messenger chats and people are flirting, sexting, they're telling racist jokes, um, and they like hate on each other, they like actively insult each other. They also use and invent slang that has its origins in like different parts of the world. So for Dumer, this is all playful behavior, and when they all come together, it creates what she calls the digital carnival. My first question is, do you play on social media? I don't think so, granted, because I don't tend to, like, create or, like, post content that much. Well, I guess maybe I do. I I send joking, like, funny things to my friends. I'll send videos of, like, a funny little dog doing something very weird and sort of kooky to my, like, friends to make them laugh. If that counts as play, then yes. Yeah, that is play. Or when you speak on social media, is it more playfully than you speak in real life? The very rare occasions when I do like 
make a post on social media. It does tend to be like have a flippant caption or something like that. I know what you mean. I don't think I play that much on social media because as I've matured, I mean, we're, what what do they call us? Like we grew up on the internet. Like we don't really remember a time when there wasn't internet. internet natives. Yeah. Internet natives. Exactly. I think it's not true that for our age, our age group specifically, I do remember not like being on the internet as a kid and I played like these CD-ROM games instead. And I remember like having cell phones that could access the internet, but obviously I never did because I didn't want my parents to have to pay like the money or whatever. Yeah. So you would press the internet button on your phone and then you'd be like, cancel, 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 <laughs> you know? Oh, I actually found while I was, I was decluttering a lot this weekend, I found this phone. It's mm-hmm. so snazzy. Look at this leather case. And then on the inside, it's a little LG. These two buttons are missing. But it's very satisfying. Like I remember I got really good at typing on the like numbers keypad because I, I didn't have a phone with letters. So yeah, me too. And I was jealous of all the kids who had like the slide up keyboards. Yeah. yeah, I have so many. I think I have almost all of the phones I've ever had. And the thing is like a lot of them were hand-me-downs from people who decided to upgrade their phones. And I just liked having like a new phone that I could like explore and like learn how to use. Yeah, um, I think like then I used to play more because again, it's not just about playing on platforms, it's about playing with other people through social media. Dumer is really talking about how like, for whatever reason, when regular ass people get on social media, we're inclined to play as opposed to like, we're always this playful all the time and we regard social media as somewhere we can play and be playful and joke around. And when I was like, texting my friends in middle school I was definitely more playing than yeah. when I text my friends now I guess memes would be a huge factor of this this new strain of like both visual and verbal humor that's like hyper precise that's been created in this social media format I think that the reason we might not play as much now is because it would be helpful for us to have a social media brand and so we end up treating a lot of platforms as like professional arenas when I really think about it I think TikTok is the only place that I play anymore and even that I feel this pressure to like produce content or like treat the content formally or something yeah TikTok's format of the way you consume content like sets it apart like it obviously it has options to like save videos and go back to them and to follow people but to me when I interact I don't produce any content on TikTok but when I interact with videos on TikTok, it is in a very different way than when I interact with posts on Instagram. Instagram's more formal and it feels less fleeting. TikTok feels very fleeting to me, even though I can pull back up videos. I'm wondering if maybe, you know, the major social media platforms that we used to be on, like when we were learning how to be people in social media, for us, like more than Instagram, it was Tumblr. And Tumblr, because it is a blog format, is a little more informative or like people go there to curate or to learn. And so I maybe that has stayed with me, even with Instagram and TikTok. Now I'm trying to think about the difference in the way like I interact with social media versus like my youngest sister, because she like never had a Tumblr and like never used earlier formats like that which like you said were more personal they were more like writing heavy I feel like they didn't have or they had much larger character limits and therefore it wasn't as skewed towards like the visual 
and it was more like longer content on tumblr i'd watch a video that was like a couple minutes long was tiktok the cap is one minute yeah um there's actually this idea of like making instagram casual again i've seen tiktoks where people are like showing their instagrams before and after this idea of making instagram casual again is to like post unpolished photos or just post photos in your camera roll that you really like without thinking like does this match my feed does this make sense to people is this something that people are gonna like and that I think is only possible now because people are taking photos all the time and I'm not just talking about like because we can but a lot of social interaction now or a lot of what you do when you go anywhere now is to take a photo of it like that's a major way that we interact with new spaces and new people I think I think I see a lot of accounts too that have started posted like these very like cryptic images without context, like not just unpolished photos of themselves or like their lives, but like photos from the internet that like they've just drawn up that are like weird (laughs) and like kind of strange with like no caption or no comment or like just doing like these photo dumps and curating these sort of like mood boards through their Instagram. I feel like it's also, it's still an attempt to curate an image even if the image is different than the like more polished mainstream version, it's still a curation. Yeah. Is curation play? I don't know. I think it depends. Like it's one thing to curate images, but it's another thing to curate like products. Like also you see that also on Instagram, like especially with like things like skincare Instagrams where it's just constant flat lays of like these like thousands and thousands of dollars worth of like skincare and like makeup products that they have. And it's just, like, you know, piles them and, like, photos of, like, these cabinets that are, like, stuffed to the brim and all these product reviews. I don't know. I can't see that as play because it's so deeply, like, consumeristic. Oh, for me, I'm, like, very much into skincare. And, like, some of my friends have told me, like, oh, you should start a skincare Instagram. But, like, my skincare Instagram would be so boring. I would be, like, this is the one cleanser I have that works. I always use it. This is the one toner that's, like, really helped with, like, my like the redness and the sensitivity in my skin and then like my moisturizer and sunscreen that'll be it i'd have like four posts and would be like it's not going to change i'm not going to buy like you know but isn't that the there's like a cathartic feeling that you get from watching movies where they're like it's just rich people doing rich things you know i mean the statement that is being made there is that if you can just buy stuff shop for stuff like that is play Uh, It's not a form of play for me because of the lack of capacity I have to engage in that play. And also because of like the mental stress, it's, it doesn't feel like play to me, you know? I can't relate to the idea of like a cathartic feeling watching rich people like in movies or on YouTube. That's not cathartic for me. What was that TikTok woman who's like, she was like, I'm your rich Korean mom or something like that. She did those like outfit videos, like how to wear monochrome and stuff like that. Like, people were talking about how much they love to videos. I'm like, I don't like this at all. Like, it just infuriates me to see, like, that much wealth and having it be spent on something that in the grand scheme of things isn't important or really helping that many people. Well, I think the reason why people particularly felt comfortable watching her content is because she took what people were saying, like, oh my god, you are so wealthy. And she was like, okay. Yeah, I mean, I am. And I love fashion and my work is in fashion and in lifestyle. And I can afford to do this level of work because I am rich and I'm your rich mom. Like, <laughs> Granted, I only watched one or two of her TikToks and was like, I can't get this. So maybe I'm passing an unfair judgment. <laughs> There's like a similar thing as this makeup artist who I used to follow on Instagram. 
but I followed her because she like said this thing. She talked about how she had bought a house in 2020. And she's like, I feel like really ashamed of this because the only reason I could buy a house because like my parents bought me my apartment in New York and like in my 20s. And like, you know, people always like shame me for that. Like it's unfair of like that I should feel shame for this. And I was like, you are so whiny. You're really upset that like you feel mildly guilty that your parents bought you like an apartment in Manhattan. And that's enabled you to now buy like property. That was just deeply infuriating to her. But like, it really made me think about the way like, she couldn't just feel like, yeah, I'm wealthy and I have access to money because uh, she is. She's like had to play into this whole thing where like the internet made me feel bad about it and I feel guilty. And so I had to do this whole performance of like not having money. And like she talked about how she's like, I had to like try and hide that I bought a house because I felt ashamed of it. And I was like, shut up. But <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, compared to people like that who are so afflicted by their own feeling of shame and they for whatever reason, make their feelings the fault of somebody else. Compared to them, people like the rich mom, obviously still the same problem, like you're watching them indulge in all this stuff, but in comparison, it's like so much more comfortable. What about if it's less personal or like less person to person? Like one of my favorite movies is Sofia Coppola's Marie Antoinette because it's just an absolutely indulgent, movie in terms of its cinematography in terms of its morals honestly it's also it has this idealistic flair because it because it is a coming of age movie and those are generally just like perfect circles of movies you know and so it's emotionally indulgent as well i do really love that movie the movie it's something i can like love and i feel like sympathy for marie antoinette i think i do feel sympathy for her as historical figure as well even though clearly the French Revolution did need to happen. I think the movie gives her like a very humanizing element by like focusing on her emotional growth. It is very like soothing to see like the opulence and the aesthetic and just like the decadence of like every scene, especially like the scene with the shopping and the shoes and like the bolts of fabric everywhere that really like put in perspective for me her wealth because like the amount of money fabric cost back then is like astronomical. That's just a side note. People don't really grasp how wealthy or like how much wealth was on display by her and by her fashions because they don't understand like how insanely expensive fabric was back then. Yeah, soothing is the exact word I would use. It's soothing to sometimes see rich people indulge in their wealth. I actually have the opposite sort of perspective as you because when I'm watching those types of movies where for me the characters are easier to objectify or to make into symbols or signals, like I cannot not think about how honestly she went through so very little emotional growth. Yes, she became a mo- like a loving mother and a respectful wife or whatever, but like she was spoiled to the end. She was naive to the end. She had no, like she only died, she only faced her death because she didn't know what death was. Like she didn't take it seriously. And then on the other hand, when I'm looking at like real people indulging their wealth, like even like just current celebrities, I'm like, they're just like, they're stupid. Like, <laughs> I'm like, they don't know any better. <laughs> like, what am I going to do? Like come after their fucking life right now? Like, uh, they're just doing what they're doing. Like, so, and that's all, of course only sometimes, but for me, my sympathies tend to go the other way. I feel similar, similarly, but like, angrier about current celebrities like I see them being stupid and saying dumb things like the whole Carly Kloss thing that just Mm -hmm. happened the other day 
where people are like, why haven't you tried to talk to like your in-laws, Ivanka Trump, um, about this? And she was like, I tried. And everyone's like, oh, you tried? That's why you like bought the like multi-million house next to her in Malibu. And I'm like, yeah, like rich people are just stupid, but also like get their shit together. Like I've been forced to learn things. Why should they not be forced to learn too? Yeah, that totally makes sense. <laughs> the scenes that I loved in Marie Antoinette is like the new breakfast. And she has a new gown on and new hair and all the food is different. Like every reset, I really enjoyed that. And I love the scene where they stay up all night, I think on her birthday, on her 18th mm-hmm. birthday. And that's the first time you learn her age, I think. Because mm-hmm. some this random courtesan is like, happy 18th birthday. And you're like, 18? <laughs> She was, like, 16 when she got married to him. Yeah, so then she and her friends all, like, run out to the water, and then they, like, drink champagne by the water. Like, that was such, you know, like, a very 21st century scene. I remember reading once that Marie Antoinette and her husband, Louis, all the food that they ate was always cold because the kitchen was so far away that by the time it got to them, (laughs) it was cold. Damn, they really suffered. (laughs) (laughs) Marie Antoinette's her robe de reine. Do you know that very famous painting of her in the white cotton robe? I can think of one where she's kind of facing three quarters. Her wig is really tall. That's probably it. This is information that I cannot remember my source for, so take it with a grain of salt. But I remember reading that that portrait of her robe de reine, it was incredibly scandalous because there's this plain cotton dress that looked kind of like an undergarment. So I was like, we can't believe the queen allowed herself to be painted in such an intimate, you know, article of clothing it's like being painted in her underwear you know sort of sort of and but of course because she did it, it was scandalous and everyone else wanted to do it so everyone instead of buying these robes de reine, which is where the name came from and these like plain white cotton dresses to imitate her and that was one of the things that uh was a huge bolster to the cotton industry in america and thus to the transatlantic slave trade because of this huge spike in demand for cotton not where it's not by the french going. people <laughs> Okay, I guess we can put that one on her docket as well. (laughs) (laughs) Again, surely unintentional on her part, but like still. Which goes to show, influencers still matter. She was an an original influencer and her impact was profound in ways (laughs) you do not expect. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, she definitely has given up the right to be forgotten. Yeah. My senior thesis advisor in college, Mike Sizer, he taught a class on revolutions of the world about all these different revolutions that have happened and like the different forms they've taken and their impact, which ones had, or like how we define success in a revolution and like why, which ones had succeeded and which ones hadn't. And obviously we discussed the French Revolution and he told us how he told his daughter who was like six or seven and she had like learned about Marie Antoinette in a book or something and she read about it and she came to him really upset when she found out that Marie Antoinette was beheaded with her children and his daughter was really upset. She's like, why did they have to kill her? Like she was just kind of doing her job. She didn't like, you know, she didn't really know what she was doing. And Mike was like, no, she had to die. (laughs) And his daughter was like, but like they didn't need to kill her children too. Like they were just children. And Mike was like, no, in order for the like revolution to succeed, she had to die. She was, symbolic of the monarchy and without her death the revolution could not succeed which you know it's never too early to teach your children i i love thinking about symbols and the symbolization of people 
and isn't that what we're all kind of doing on social media or like visual social media especially professional influencers you know yeah you're not going to succeed unless you establish a brand you're not going to succeed unless people know what they're getting from you and you continue to surprise them with a better and better version of what they already expect it makes me think a lot about like these different sort of pockets and aesthetics that you see in influencers like I'm thinking specifically in terms of like skincare and like makeup products or like makeup styles and or like the different color palettes how you can kind of pick out exactly what type of influencer someone is based off of like their color palette and maybe a couple of key products that they use and it's really wild to see how sort of how regularly people fit very neatly into these subcategories. It's hard to like talk about algorithms and about people creating themselves into products that already exist like molding themselves into an existing category so perfectly because it is all kind of like symbiotic and self-destructive it doesn't make sense not to do that and it doesn't make sense for social media platforms to have a more like loose or random algorithm Because the point is, like, you want people on there, you want people consuming content, if not actual product. That's another reason why it's hard for me to, like, well, it's not hard for me to blame influencers for, like, shitty things they do, or for wealth hoarding, or for, like, showing off wealth and stuff. But it just makes sense. Like, what would be, what would be another choice that makes sense, you know? Even the type of influencer who's like, I'm just trying to be myself and I got here by trying to be myself. I, I believe that they believe that and I believe that that's true to some extent. Like, just the, the feeling of liberty felt in their choices. But maybe their choices were really narrow to begin with. Yeah, that's like people who talk about aesthetic preferences as if they like somehow exist within a vacuum. I'm not sure if this is like a useful parallels to draw but it's like when people say that they have like preferences for women who are like thin or like women of a certain race like they racially fetishize people um and they're like oh well like these are just my preferences and I'm like yeah sure like you think it's just an inert preference that you happen to have but that preference did not spring fully grown from your head the minute you were born like you formed that preference based off of a value system and based off of cultural biases given to you that's why the defense doesn't really work. Like, I mean, if that's your preference, ultimately, then again, like, I don't, like, I can't do anything about it. I don't care. Like, just whatever, just stay away from me. But how can you think that's a legitimate defense? <laughs> like, nothing <laughs> is in a vacuum. And if the, if the point is like that, you can't control your preferences, then why would that be good? Like, why? <laughs> then why is that okay? I don't know. Like, <laughs> I think, you know, when it's for profit, when it's your job, that's a actually much more complicated conversation than seeing people who are just normal people living their everyday life and are younger but they feel like they also have to perform like influencer work on their personal profiles and there's no self-awareness that like that's not how it has to be I feel like it's actually a much simpler conversation for like the average social media user yeah that's something with like influencers like just what every influencer talks about, like authenticity and how they're like, you know, I'm just like, I'm just being myself, like authentically me or whatever. And like you said, sure, I do believe that they believe that or like that, like, you know, they believe that that is how they got there. But like some point, like it really is like it's a performance. And especially if you're doing it for profit, are you authentic, like authentically a performer (laughs) constantly? Like that's who you really are is someone who does sponsored posts. That's your like most authentic self. 
well, that's not something I need influencers to understand. I need regular people to understand that. We're not authentically performers and there's no reason to make something that could be like your community into what your consumers, like they're not even consuming anything. You're not giving them anything, you know? Yeah. And I think like those two levels of conversation about social media and identity like need to be separated for the latter, the more personal level, like for that discussion to make sense. I think a lot about the globalizing effect of ourself. Obviously, we understand that we're connected to people in lots of places and our idea of the world and of 8 billion people existing together has deepened. Like the average person has a much bigger working grasp of infinity. But we don't often realize that we see ourselves as huge as well. We see our matter as globalized. Like I think a lot about what are the ramifications real are thinking ourselves as so big i think it makes us really like overanalyze every one of our actions to see like whether or not we're creating the like impact we want to because we think that the impact will be much greater than it is it's like the spotlight effect like people talk about how especially people with anxiety think that like everyone is looking at them or like everyone is remembering some like faux pas that they committed like 20 minutes ago and they're absolutely sure that like everyone is like mocking them or something but in reality like very few people are thinking about them like you told me in high school I was like convinced that this one girl like hated me or something because she said something in like an offhand tone of voice and you're like Catherine no one cares enough about you to hate you (laughs) which like (laughs) at the moment I was like what (laughs) but I'm glad I tacked on to hate you like like, I'm sure people think about you enough to like you (laughs) yeah but yeah, I think it was a good statement because like lots of people can like you, but very few people like really are going to care enough to genuinely hate you. Someone can be like irritated with you or like annoyed in passing, but it's highly unlikely that you are significant enough that they like truly like hate you. I thought that was freeing. And I think about that a lot, especially when I post on social media, like I'll be like, oh, everyone's going to think this is so cringe that I posted this photo and like they're all going to laugh at me. And I'm like, you know what? No one cares enough me enough about me. <laughs> like, it's my point of view that that thrill of imagining yourself contextualized by other people or you, you existing in other people's minds, that's not just, like, a connection thing. Like, people always try to be like, oh, we love human connection, and that's why, like, we love putting ourselves in other people's heads. I think that's an ego thing as well. It's not just about, like, the activity of social media, but the vehicle that social media is for our natural egos um and that's why it's so fun when like certain memes come around one that was so fun was um you're a touchy subject for at least one couple i don't remember that one really okay i mean it, it is it's exactly what it is like you're a touchy subject for at least one couple either your ex and their current partner or your current partner's ex or whatever people love thinking about themselves that way because it's like proof that you exist maybe <laughs> yeah or proof that you were valued. Yeah. And then a lot of people were being like, yeah, for my parents. <laughs> <laughs> or like, I love those memes that come up that are like people like, tell me what vibe I give off. And it's like the, the three like levels or things like that, because it indulges in like, I love talking about myself, but also I love hearing other people's perception of me. And it's hard for me to look at people just naturally, their ego just doing its thing and for me to be like, oh, this is evil and this is what's wrong with our generation. 
it's what everyone's doing. Like, it's just so natural. And it's what social media has become for us to do. Like, once we got cars, we started traveling more, you know? Like, once we got social media, we started exercising our ego more. And that is what I'm interested in. Not necessarily in being like, oh, social media is having this, like, this net impact on society and on this part of society and on that part of society. It's more like, what is social media to us is the question that I'm more interested in. I mean, this feels almost like trite to say, but like all tools, it can be like a really positive thing, but also a really negative thing, depending on the way you use it. Um, like the accounts that you choose to follow and you choose to support and the content you choose to produce yourself can really like make or break it. Like I remember this, having this conversation with you in high school when I, I was on Tumblr and I was going through a rough time deep in the anorexia pit. And I followed all these like thin spell accounts, all these like super skinny girls, like posting pictures of themselves. And I was like, look into all this. And I was like, I hate myself. I look awful. I need to lose weight. And you're like, Catherine, like you should just unfollow these accounts if they're making you feel bad every day. And it like blew my mind. I was like, <laughs> I can do that. Like, I mean, clearly I was not thinking straight at that time for a myriad of reasons, but I was like, whoa, like that's such a crazy thought that you can just like instead of looking at things that make me feel bad all day, I can like, I can look at other things. So I started doing it and made a huge impact. (laughs) (laughs) I remember I would see you like scrolling through your feed and like really like rapid fire reblogging all of these like pro anorexia, like pro self-harm images. And I remember being like, well, maybe that's what she needs. Like maybe like that stops her (laughs) from actually doing it in real life. But it just got to a point where I was like, it was very it's glaringly obvious like in hindsight but I feel like for a lot of people like they have to learn that for the first time at some point and then once you learn that that like you actually do get to control the content that like you see to a degree that can like actually make you feel a lot better that makes a huge difference yeah it's not just social media or it's not just us using social media to curate our life or curate our thoughts but it's also social media algorithms have a huge part in doing that for you as well and we don't realize that because for us we're the only thing that's working on our phone you know like it's just our fingers it's just our fingertips we don't realize like oh there's a computer behind the whole thing it's like a it's like a game of chess like i make a move and then they make a move and then i make a move and they make a move you know yeah. And so you don't realize how much of it is actually not something you chose, at least explicitly. But I mean, that is so helpful to learn, not just in the realm of social media. But one thing I saw was like, there was somebody who who had depression. It was a very dysfunctional depression. So when they were in a particular like funk, it was so hard for them to get up, to eat, to shower, to do anything. They were like, it's so hard for me to eat it's so hard for me to cook something so I can eat it because it takes so much energy for me. And the therapist was like, well, how about you don't cook it? How about you just eat the ingredients? You know, (laughs) that person was like, it's so hard for me to make a sandwich. And this therapist was like, just eat the bread and just eat the ham (laughs) and the lettuce. (laughs) Like that was like, that was so helpful for that person. There's also, I've seen like people will buy clothing that they really like but they can't quite fit into and they're like oh but like I'll just work out or something and I'll change my body shape a little or I'll lose a little weight and then I'll be able to fit into it because I really like this article of clothing and then 
their therapist was like, maybe you should just buy clothing that fits. Like maybe you should just not buy clothing that isn't made for you, you know? I mean, for me, that is more proof that the question, the, the conversation we should be really having is like, what is social media to us in the realm of human experience and human life, as opposed to like social media as something like an act of God and we're like all running around. Yeah, it's not like we're like just rats in a little maze that like we have to cope with what we're given. It's like we have an active role in shaping and what we're given, given and choosing whether or not we participate in it. What I've seen of, you know, people younger than me I do have a younger sister who's three, almost four years younger than me. And then also I've tutored a lot. So I've seen kids anywhere from like ages like nine or eight or nine to 17. I think if anything, it's more like the person off of social media and the person on social media are becoming one. The different amount of stamina, like I have a lot of stamina for binging TV shows, but not really for like being on Instagram or like being on Twitter and like constantly tweeting my thoughts or like writing my thoughts down. Whereas my sister, it comes much more naturally to her to just verbalize her, what she's feeling and what she's thinking. But yeah, I can definitely see how like different generations have a different stamina for social media. I feel like when I'm on social media, when I'm in like a social media hole, my brain is gone. Like like all I have are my eyeballs and what's in front of me and everything else is gone. It's supposed to be extremely personal, just me and my phone. Like that's what that's what it is physically. But I'm gone. Like I'm not there. <laughs> my body is there, but it's just it's there's nothing inside anymore. And then when I close my phone, I'm like I'm back. <laughs> <laughs> Is that relatable to you or is that just me? I know I feel like that. Like I'll just sort of get into a trance just cuz I'm like trying to numb my head a little bit it's just like on tiktok or instagram or something and then when i close it, i'm like back to being a human yeah it's ironic because social media pla- social media platforms are supposed to be you know for us to enhance our co- connection but it really just feels like we step through and then we are we're all gone yeah um gone in like the category these aesthetic categories positive feedback loop algorithms like authenticity it is like just mud yeah this has been roses all trash the accompanying podcast to read community this is for week four of the january 2021 calendar on place location and identity i really hope you enjoyed this month's readings next month's readings obviously it's february it's gonna be all about love self-love revolutionary love community love Um, and a fourth topic that we will come up with eventually. (laughs) Follow us on Spotify, YouTube, and Apple Podcasts, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Make sure you like, share, subscribe, ring the bell. Um, (laughs) Save. save Saving on Instagram is really important for us. So our Instagram is at rosesalltrash, and our personal Instagrams are at rrryen and at katherine.shark. We love you, we respect you, and we're waiting for you. Bye. Bye.